The Weekend Variety Wireless. Outsiders with Gerard Hindmarsh, one of New Zealand's most famous names. His metal forged in warfare, really, that's what he's most famous for, but also as a statesman as well. We're talking Lieutenant General, Sir General, Lieutenant General Freiburg. There's a statue of him in High Street in Auckland as he stares out over the shoppers. Freiburg, he is a famous name in New Zealand, isn't he? Oh, he's a, he's a superhero, really, Graham. And, uh, you know, as years go on, I suppose there's slightly less appreciation of some of these heroes that we had. But this guy was gigantic, really. Lieutenant General Bernard Cyril Freiburg. He was also called First Baron Freiburg. He was actually made a baron. It's sort of humbling to research him. He really is a great man. He was British-born, but he came out here when he was two with his parents. He's a soldier hero. I mean, he was a Victoria Cross, but that's only part of it. I could spend minutes reading all his awards. He was a, not only the Victoria Cross, a Knight Grand Cross of the Order of St. Michael and St. George, a Knight Commander of the Order of the Bath, a Knight Commander of the Order of the British Empire, Distinguished Service Order. He got that three times. He was mentioned in so many dispatches I lost count when I was researching. He was a Knight of the Venerable Order of St. John, the uh, Croix de Gris of France, the Legion of Merit in the United States and he even got quite a few medals from Greece, a Grand Commander with Swords of the Order of St. George and the Cross of Valour and the War Cross as well. And a lot of people aren't aware that he was also a veteran of the Mexican Revolution. He was actually a captain under Pancho Vela. So that's really colourful character. Yeah, he's probably best known these days, for those that do know about him, for being a general in World War II. But, yeah, early on, some of his exploits are just outrageously amazing. Yeah, Winston Churchill called him the salamander, he said, because he had an ability to slither through fire unharmed, but it wasn't quite the case. He was actually wounded nine times. He was almost totally fearless under fire. He could be given a job to attack or create a diversion, and this is where he became particularly famous in some of these exploits. He actually served 10 years fighting the Germans in both wars. I think he was the youngest general ever in the British Army. He uh, went on to command the um, New Zealand Expeditionary Force in the Battle of Crete and uh, the North African campaign. He was involved in the Allied defeat in the Battle of Greece, Battle of Crete. He just performed successfully, and particularly in the North African campaign, commanding the 2nd New Zealand Division, including the 2nd Battle of El Alamein. He was one of the first to enter Trieste, relieved Padua and Venice, where he successfully confronted Tito's partisans. But by the end of World War II, you know, I said he'd spent altogether in his life 10 years actively fighting the Germans. It's about as much as you could do, Graham. He was of German-Austrian descent with a name like Freiburg. 
Yeah, that's right. And he was actually born in Richmond, Surrey on the 21st of March 1889. Interesting little lead up to his military career. Uh, he was born to James Freiburg and his second wife, Julia Hamilton. Now, of course, his father was of partial Austrian-German descent. And they moved to New Zealand when he was two for a better life. He uh, went to Wellington College from 1897 to 1904. Now, the first thing he really distinguished himself was as a strong swimmer. He won the New Zealand 100 Metres Championship in 1906 and 1910. He was a New Zealand champion virtually at school. He was absolutely astounding. Did he go to any of those early Olympics? No, he didn't actually. He, he wasn't selected for anything like that, which is interesting, but he showed a lot of prowess in several sports, but swimming was definitely his, his best one. And he used to defeat boys always four to five years older than himself. And in 1904, he got four New Zealand freestyle championships. That was in Nelson, and he gained two second places and six starts. He loved the school's cadet corps. He rose to the rank of sergeant in that. That was um, quite interesting. He had a sort of very military precision to him, and I suppose that gave him an incredible determination and stamina. He couldn't be ignored. He stuck out. How did he get involved in the military? Interesting. He, he left school and he had aspirations to become a dentist. It's sort of slightly out of character, some people think. He graduated in dentistry and he actually practised in Levin and Hamilton and Morinsville. But it was in Morinsville that he asked to take up a subalternship in the territorials there. And it was interesting that they turned him down at that stage. Now, he was terribly disappointed at this. And so he took off himself. First of all, early in 1914, now this was just before the outbreak of World War One. he left his career and everything in Morinsville and he travelled to San Francisco. So it's been said it was on the proceeds of the sale of, of many of his trophies, his swimming trophies. He actually just hocked them off before he left. Yeah, he got his way around by challenging people to prize money and often they were in the America and particularly through the, some of the towns there were prize fights and uh, he would get in this and he would take the prize money and this is how he funded his way around. Well, this would only be a few years after New Zealand's probably greatest sports achiever, uh, achiever Bob Fitzsimmons, middleweight, light heavy and heavyweight titles. Right, right. He was still untamed in a way, certainly finding all the adventure he wanted. And it was in San Francisco, apparently, that he heard about the Mexican Revolution and he reputedly um, joined that and became a captain under Pancho Villas. Not a lot's known about his exploits there, but it was pretty short-lived because when he heard about the outbreak of war, he immediately set out to London. He won a swimming competition in Los Angeles on his way out and in New York he won quite a bit of money in a prize fight and uh, he left for England to enlist into the army. He sounds like such an alpha male doesn't he? Oh absolutely and of course his nickname Graham was Tiny which is totally incongruous you know it's exactly what he wasn't but people used to laugh about it and he kind of looks the chap too you know these older photos of him with that sort of square jaw and the mistake 
moustache and definitely a military man through and through. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he arrived in England and he got posted to the Royal Naval Division, which was a, a land force. And now he rose to the rank of brigadier. Now, he was only in his 20s. And at 27, he was the youngest to achieve that rank in the British forces. He got wounded nine times in World War One, and his winning exploit was the capture of the strongly fortified village of Beaucourt. And it was described by a high-ranking soldier as probably the most distinguished personal act in the whole war. But, you know... What, can you describe that? This incident occurred on the 13th of November 1916 at Beaucourt in France after Freiburg's battalion carried the initial attack through the enemy's front system of trenches and he rallied and reformed his own disorganised men and quite a few others actually of other battalions and he led them on a successful assault of what was called the second objective where he suffered two wounds, quite severe wounds too, but he remained in command and held his ground throughout the day and the following night. When he was finally reinforced, the next morning he attacked and captured a strongly fortified village and he took 500 prisoners that day and uh, although he was wounded twice more in that same battle, the second time very severely, he refused to leave the line until he had issued final instructions The citation for the award, which was published in the London Gazette, describes the events and it concludes with the personality, valour and utter contempt of danger on the part of the single officer enabled the lodgement in the most advanced objective of the corps that he permanently held. And on this point, the line was eventually formed. So it was a very heroic act, and he'd, he was wounded four times in that uh, battle, which he refused to even relinquish his command. Yeah, Freiburg, as I mentioned earlier, most well known for uh, his leadership in World War II, but uh, it, I think it may come as a surprise to some people. He played a pivotal role at Gallipoli, and it was a peculiar piece of bravery, making use of his extraordinary swimming abilities. First man ashore, I think. Yeah. We'll take a break and come back. Don't go anywhere, folks. His incredible swim is really something else. It's quite bizarre and it is heroic. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. Bernard Freiburg, definitely an outsider in as much as, boy, is he an alpha male and would you want him on your side in a fight? And we had him on our side in a fight. New Zealander, born in Britain, but came over here when he was two. So he's uh, as Kiwi as you like. Fighting in World War One, An extraordinary feat he performed in the setup for the landing at Gallipoli. Oh, well, it's just absolutely his definitive act of bravery, if you like, his epic swim. And it was uh, the scenes the night before the landing at Gallipoli and a whole lot of warships of the Royal Navy were steaming into the Gulf of Saros to create a diversion. Now, on the destroyer Kennet was Bernard Freiburg. He'd been detailed to take a platoon ashore near Bular to act as a decoy. Now, the Allied plan was to try to delude the Turks into believing that the main attack on Gallipoli Peninsula was to come 
at that point, they would draw troops away from the narrow strip of beach at Gallipoli Head where the main body was going to land the following morning. And that, of course, that following morning was our first original Anzac Day, 25th of April 1915. Now, Freiburg's platoon was to make sure and then light flares on the beach. Now, Freiburg thought a lot about this plan and rather than risk the lives of his men in such a venture, it was a very risky venture because all the hills around were fortified with machine gun positions, Turks just watching everything. Now, Freiburg approached his commanding officer and asked to do the job single-handedly. Now, the officer was very surprised at this, but Freiburg was insistent and he put forward his plan. He proposed to swim ashore with the flares himself and light them one at a time at different points along the beach. Now, Freiburg, he used his outstanding record as a swimmer to support his request and he said he had been a New Zealand champion and he was really up for the job and five years before he'd been the fastest swimmer in New Zealand. It'd be far better, he argued, to lose just his life than 30 that he was taking ashore. His commanding officer granted permission and Freiburg immediately prepared for it's got to be one of the most amazing feats in the annals of war, Graham. It really was. He he stripped off naked on the deck there of the Kennet and he oiled himself um, with grease and blackened his body and uh, completely naked except for a revolver and a knife which were strapped to his waist. He lowered himself into the icy cold water there and he struck out into the darkness in the direction of the shore. Now, of course, everything was in total darkness. There was not one light on that destroyer. The coldness of the water was absolutely numbing and he kept moving with long, powerful strokes towards the shore and he was towing a little raft with all the flares on it. He recalled later that his arduous task, it wasn't made any easier when he found that he was being accompanied by a big fish, which was obviously a big shark. He said afterwards, actually, that it was possibly the smell of the grease that put the shark off, but it kept bumping against him. I imagine he had his knife and his his revolver, possibly, in his hands at that point, too. But after quite a few hours and with considerable relief, he he finally felt um, the sands of the shore beneath his feet, uh, even though it was held by the enemy. He was actually on enemy territory at that time. Now, he quietly worked his way forward across the sand and decided to head inland just a little to make a quick reconnaissance. And he edged his way through rough scrub and up a slope and he completely naked, he came across these trenches which proved to be sort of dummies. He penetrated further into the enemy lines until he could actually clearly hear Turkish conversations. He just lay there naked, trembling with cold, but as he said later, not with fear. He was quite a man, Graham. you've got to, yeah. you know... And, yeah. <laughs> Just imagine. Yeah. Dark naked, covered in black. Yeah. I suppose the shark may have helped the at the time of the swim, you'd get ashore quite fast. Oh, yeah, would. <laughs> and anyway, he crawled back to the beach from there and then he lit the first flare and without a moment's delay, he was back in the water, struck up the beach again because they were immediately firing and the covering fire was coming from the 
destroyer now as well and he lit another flare some 300 yards away and on he went along the beach swimming going back in the water and coming out and lighting other flares and by the time enemy bullets were just whistling all around him but miraculously he was not hit and anyway his mission accomplished and all the flares were lit and he, he still faced the perhaps the hardest of the job as far as his own survival was concerned because he had to get back to the destroyer and it was pitch black and there wasn't a light to be seen he just had to stab out in the dark and try to find it Anyway, he valiantly struck out back into the large bay of Saros there and he spent what must have seemed an eternity, actually hours actually, trying to locate the ship. And even his tremendous reserves of strength in the water, he, he was totally fully taxed and it was only his iron willpower. He had this remarkable willpower that kept him going till suddenly from out of the darkness he could just make the destroyer looming up. He called out and he was hauled aboard on the point of absolute exhaustion. It was an exercise that was brilliantly carried out by one man and he definitely saved members of his command that he was supposed to take ashore because several of them at least would have died doing that under such heavy fire. And the decoy succeeded in distracting some of the Turkish forces from further south because they were moved from there to counter the supposed landing. But where the real Allied landing was about to begin in Gallipoli and there was no doubt that his heroic action saved the lives of more than a few men who went ashore on that fateful morning. How many men, of course, he saved in that disastrous action, who knows, but there was definitely uh, many a New Zealand and Australian and British troop who, who owed their life to him, actually, and what a man he was. He And uh, the men of the platoon and battalion must have marvelled at him, Graham. They must have, and the previous night, Freiburg had actually gone without sleep to help dig the grave of one of the battalion's subalterns, who was the young English poet Rupert Brooke, actually. Actually. Oh, heavens, yeah. Rupert Brooke. Yeah, amazing, um, amazing little story. He was in on everything, Graham. When did we learn of this amazing pre-Gallipoli feat? First man ashore. Yeah, first man ashore. No, it came out in a dispatch, actually. It made quite big headlines in New Zealand. And, I mean, he was considered very much a New Zealander at that time, uh, without a doubt, even though he was serving in the British Army. There was no doubt he was taken as our own and he was given hero status here. He really was. After the landing at Gallipoli, did he join those forces landing in the Dardanelles? So he joined in the Gallipoli campaign and he actually received several serious wounds and on, on separate occasions and he, he left the peninsula when his division evacuated in January 1916. He does seem bloody near indestructible. Of course he's not indestructible. He may be the luckiest man on the planet, who knows, but it comes with a fair deal of bravery, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. And in May 16, he was transferred to the British Army. He'd recovered by then as a captain in the um, Queen's Royal West Surrey Regiment. And he remained with the Hood Battalion, as it was called, on the second temporary major. And he went out with them to France and during the final stages of the Battle of the Somme... Yeah, it does often make me feel actually queasy when you learn that the what the men suffered at Gallipoli and when they were evacuated all I would think is 
go home, have an ice cream. Yeah. But they they get shifted to hell on earth. Uh, from Gallipoli, okay, well, that didn't work. Welcome to the Western Front. And that's what happened to Bernard Freiburg. We'll take a break and come back with his exploits in World War One and uh, more of the history of this man who ended up being New Zealand Governor-General, 1946 to 1952. What a man. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. General Bernard Cyril Freiburg, one of the most famous New Zealanders, and yet some of his exploits lesser known, and they're amazing. In World War I, that incredible swim, seeing him be the first person ashore at Gallipoli, swimming naked and volunteering to do that extremely dangerous diversion with the flares uh, to decoy the Turks and managed to survive that. He survived Gallipoli, seriously wounded. Now he's shipped off to the Western Front. Hell on earth. Jared. Yeah, Battle of the Somme, and uh, he commanded a battalion, again, as a temporary lieutenant colonel, and he was he so distinguished himself, as I said, in the capture of Beaumont Village, caught 500 prisoner of war, and for that he was awarded the Victoria Cross, and he'd suffered four wounds during that attack. Just this whole personality and valour and utter contempt of danger, that was the thing that really stuck out. And it was during his time on the Western Front. He continued to lead by example, but his leadership definitely had a high cost. He received something like nine wounds during his service in France, and the men who served under him later in his career said hardly a part of his body did not have serious scars. He gained promotion to the rank of Brigadier General, although he still had the permanent rank of only a captain. Actually, it was a sort of temporary rank, and and he took command of the 173rd London Brigade. It was part of the 58th London Division, and in April 17, he was reportedly made the youngest general officer in the British Army, and that's where he got his Companion of the Order of St Michael and St George in the same year for action. And in September, a shell exploded at his feet. Now, this inflicted the worst of his many wounds. And when he resumed duty in January 1918, he went straight into commanding the 88th Brigade in the 29th Division. And he performed with absolute distinction during the German spring offences. And he won a DSO for that. And he ended the war by leading a cavalry squadron and it was detached from the 7th Dragoon Guards and he had to seize a bridge at Lysen. Now this was achieved one minute before the armistice came into effect and thus earning him a third DSO so it was fought right to the very last second of the war Graham and by the end of the war Freiburg had added the uh, French Croix de Guerre to his name as well as uh, receiving five mentions and dispatches after his escapade at Saros and with his VC and 3DSO he actually ranked as the most highly decorated British Empire soldier of the First World War. Wow. Yeah, I think it's kind of amazing to survive it. Yeah. Let alone um, throw yourself in that much danger. Oh, absolutely amazing. 
What about in between the wars? Yeah, well, he, he certainly didn't slow down. His prowess, his swimming prowess, took him to the news again in 1925, actually. And despite his many war wounds, he attempted to swim the English Channel. And it was a feat accomplished by very few up to then. So it was quite a big deal. 4th of August, 1925, at 8.20pm, he entered the water uh, on France, Cape Gresnier, and using the old English sides, stroke. He battled with the sea for 17 hours but he's three miles from the English coast. He shed his bathing costume for the greater freedom of a pair of slips. He always liked swimming, you know, with hardly anything on. Didn't like to be impaired at all with anything in his... And uh, as he was changing in the water his support crew on the accompanying launch, they could make out all his scars. Some of them were horrified. And at one o'clock on the afternoon on the 5th of August, he was still swimming strongly only 500 yards from the English coast when suddenly the tide turned and he was carried out and for about an hour he tried valiantly to bridge the gap but the sea just came up rougher and rougher and he had to give up after his wife and others on the escorting vessel entreated him to get out they just absolutely begging him and the following year he tried again to conquer to the channel but he was narrowly beaten so he never quite did it, but a damn good attempt, Graham. Yeah. Now, he tried to get back into the British Army in the mid-30s, but in 1937 he failed to pass the medical tests on the active list of the army. He was very disappointed about this, and it was purely because of his war wounds. Uh, all right, we'll take our final break. There's quite a bit to cover with his World War II career as well, but I suspect some of the stories you've just heard uh, may be um, novel to a lot of you. That amazing swim at Gallipoli is just a crazy thing. And, of course, his bravery in World War I. But World War II, when he was a general, Freiburg is very well known for. I've been asked to say a few words in Italy. We are at the moment pressing the enemy back uh, towards the important town of Florence. The battle in which our division is engaged is of vital importance uh, for the destruction of the enemy here in Italy and the destruction of the enemy material. Those guns which you hear in the background are our own 25-pounders uh, hammering the positions of the 4th Parachute Division in the high ground ahead of us. In this hard fighting, every bit of material is of the greatest importance because it enables us to save lives and brings the war uh, more quickly to an end. Right. We have reached the vital stage when I believe we can speed the victory. If we can maintain pressure on the enemy and fight him whenever we can, and if you can get to us the material and the munitions, I believe this alone may well be the victory loan. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh, our outsider this week. 
General Freiburg, well-known New Zealander. But, man, I've learned a thing or two. I re didn't really realise how outrageous his feats of courage uh, under fire uh, were. Uh, World War II is a general, of course, and this is where he becomes even more famous, I suppose. Jared? As soon as war broke out, he just wouldn't say no to the army and he got back on the active list and he renewed his close link um, with New Zealand when he was given command of the 2nd New Zealand Expeditionary Force. Now, he won really amazing admiration from his own men, Graham, and also other Allied soldiers. They had great respect, even from the enemy, for his leadership of the, of the New Zealand Division and actions in North Africa, Greece, Crete and Italy and even in the rigours of the Italian winter so rumour had it amongst the New Zealand troops they still used to call him Tiny Freiburg he was still prepared to pit his swimming prowess against the enemy and he wanted to swim across the Sangro River when the river was the front line and he just wanted to like taunt them if you like and it was said he, he was actually deterred from doing that only by the English army Army commander General Montgomery. Otherwise, he would have gone, Graham. He wanted to swim across and touch the enemy lines and then come back again, you know. In the chaos of the retreat from the Greek mainland campaign of 1941, London gave Freiburg command of the Allied forces during the Battle of Crete. And controversy, I must admit, surrounds his use of intelligence messages during this battle. But, you know, that's all one thing. He definitely played things to the extreme. He wasn't a normal sort of commander. He continued to command the 2nd New Zealand Division through the North African and Italian campaigns of the British 8th Army. He, and he had a very excellent reputation on a divisional level as a tactician. And as I said, this is where Winston Churchill, he described him as the salamander. Amazing ability. It was just so heartbreaking, that Crete and Greece campaign. Uh, so many people would have just felt heartbroken about it, not being able to do anything when the, when the Nazis came over the hill. Yeah, that's right. And as I said, an exploding German shell it wounded Freiburg at the Battle of Ertuk in June 1942. And he soon returned to the battlefield, but he, he had a very strong disagreement with his superior, who was General Claude Aichenlich, and it was the 8th Army commander. And he insisted that as a commander of a national contingent, he had the right to refuse orders if those orders ran counter to the New Zealand national interest. So he was a very free thinker as well. And on the other hand, Freiburg, uh, you know, as I said, he enjoyed a good relationship with many um, of the other generals, uh, Montgomery in particular, who thought very highly of him, but he, he wasn't afraid to express himself. Now, in the climactic battle of El Alamein, that was in um, October, November 1942, the second New Zealand division under his command played a, a vital part in the Allies' final breakthrough, and for his leadership of that, he was immediately promoted to 
Knight Commander of the Order of Bath and during the ensuing pursuit of the Axis forces across North Africa to Tunisia where they surrendered in May 1943 he led the New Zealanders on a series of very well executed left hooks designed to sort of outflank successive enemy defence lines and he briefly commanded um, what was called the X Corps which was a, a more discreet force uh, almost like a uh, special ops if you like he was pretty badly injured in an aircraft crash in September 1943 and he spent six weeks in hospital and he returned to command the New Zealand division in the final operations. Now this was the spring 1945 offensive in Italy. It involved a series of river crossings and an advance of 250 miles in three weeks. That was very, you know, getting that many supplies along with you is a big ask. And by the time of Germany's capitulation, the New Zealanders had reached Trieste and they'd already liberated both Padua and Venice, where there were briefly a tense standoff with Yugoslav partisans. But uh, this success earned him a third bar to his DSO, and he was made commander of the United States Legion of Merit as well. So acknowledged from every angle, actually. He excelled in the Operation Supercharge at El Alamein again and and the storming of the Sinino Line in 1945 and the two operations that Freiburg commanded at Crete and Monte Cassino, they sort of counted as less successful and throughout the war he showed a sort of disdain for danger. He really did. But it was interesting, um, some of the comments, he showed notable concern for the welfare of his soldiers, taking a common sense attitude to discipline and ensuring the establishment of social facilities for his men. He became a very popular commander with the New Zealand soldiers by the time he left his command in 1945. Now, there's one thing we should mention. He was actually closely associated with a very controversial decision to bomb the ancient monastery at Monte Cassino in Italy in February 1944. He commanded the troops which fought, which later became known as the Second and Third Battles of Monte Cassino, and he he was totally convinced that the abbey, now this had been founded in 529 AD, was being used as a military stronghold. The analysis of one of Freiburg's divisional commanders concluded in a memo to Freiburg that regardless of whether the monastery was currently occupied by the Germans, it should not be demolished. Unfortunately, Freiburg took the decision to, to actually basically demolish the monastery. Oh, it's so it's so difficult in wartime to, to have these sensitivities. Oh, yeah, that's right. But uh, anyway, but other monks did confirm later that there'd been no German occupation actually of the monastery. So yeah, but who who knew that? I know exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, it's a dreadful thing to have happen, but what's more dreadful? Yeah. That's famous footage too, that, isn't it? That Monte Cassino bombing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Up on top of the hill, boof. I know, incredible. They basically, you know, again, he, he finished fighting right to the end of the war. Incredible man. He fought the entire two wars, Graham. And, yeah. You know, you know, and then became our Governor General. Yeah. Our, Almost um, immediately afterwards. Yeah, our seventh Governor General of New Zealand. 
That was from June 1946, so virtually straight after the war to August 1942. He was our first New Zealand-educated Governor-General to hold the position. He took over from, um, Sir, I think it was Sir Cyril um, Newell, and he was succeeded by Sir Willoughby Norrie, I think it was. And he became a member of the House of Lords as Baron Freiburg as well, and they created a peerage for him. And there was actually, he succeeded by his son Paul Freiburg, actually, that was interesting. After his term as New Zealand Governor-General had finished, Freiburg returned to England, actually, where he sat frequently in the House of Lords. And on the March 1953, I think it was, he became the Deputy Constable and Lieutenant Governor of Windsor Castle. And he took up residence in the Norman Gateway the following year. So, you know, if you had someone to guard you, Graham, of course, it would have to be um, him, wouldn't it? <laughs> you can, yeah. You can certainly see. But what an incredible man. I mean, one thing after other. And he, he uh, in between the wars too, he did things like stand for Parliament for the uh, Liberal Party, you know, and, and Cardiff. He didn't, I don't think he got in, but he, he had aspirations in so many directions. It was quite incredible. Yeah. These dreadful wounds that he survived, they got him in the end. Yeah, they did indeed. He died at the age of 75, and it was actually a war wound that ruptured and uh, got him, actually. He's actually buried in the churchyard of St Martha on the hill near Guildford in Surrey. I think his wife is buried beside him, and his son, uh, who also had the military cross, is buried at the end of the grave. So back home, if you like, from where he was born. He died at Windsor, actually, and I, as I said, it was a rupture of that wound that war wound that finally got him. He couldn't escape that. He, his body was a, quite a mess, actually. But, uh, you know, his legacy is so amazing in New Zealand. I mean, we've got so many things named after him. 1955, Freiburg High School in Palmerston North, New Zealand, that opened, and there was a number of streets named after him, of course, all around New Zealand, as well as buildings such as the Freiburg Pool at Wellington's Oriental Bay. I used to swim there nearly every day when I was a kid. And I never appreciated the man. You know, Grandma always said, I'm going to Freiburg. And yeah. um, I, that opened in 1963. And there were also other structures, include Freiburg Field in Auckland. That opened in 1965. It was dedicated to him. And there was Freiburg Building in Wellington. That was built in 1979. And it originally housed the New Zealand Defence Force headquarters, actually. So very well remembered. And, of course, there's the um, Sir Bernard Freiburg Cup is awarded to the winner in single skulls at the New Zealand Rowing Championship still every year. That's a very prominent name, the Freiburg name, attached to so many things. This should be a naked night swim competition too for the Freiburg Cup. Oh, that should, and there should be the odd shark released there too, just to increase the tension, don't you think? It is quite incredible. Oh, one one other thing uh, is the statue. It's a lovely statue of Bernard Freiburg, looking rather authoritative, legs slightly apart, um, standing just on High Street in Auckland, and be a familiar sight to a lot of people. So there he is. And maybe a pointless aside, but I may as well tell you... um, I know whose legs they are. Uh, the sculptor's son is a friend of mine, and he 
<laughs> he had to pose for the Freiburg sculpture. So those legs belong to Dominic Stone, actually. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. I just want to mention one thing, Graham, who he married. Yeah, sure. Yeah, now, in 1922, he married Barbara McLaren. Now, she was a daughter of Sir Herbert and Dame Agnes Jekyll and the widow of the Honourable Frances McLaren. And they married at St Martha on the Hill in Surrey. And Barbara had two children from her previous marriage. And she and um, Freiburg later had a son, Paul. Now, he lived from 1923 to 1993. So there's not a lot about his personal life, you know, because he, he lived it through the military and his amazing exploits. He really was a man's man, Graham. Yeah. It is incredible to know that there was someone who, if you could line up some of the most frightening times and places of the 20th century, you'd say Gallipoli, yeah, I was there. Oh, the Somme, yeah, I was there. Uh, all along the Western Front, uh, survived World War One. yeah, I was there. Oh, Greece, yeah, I was there. Italy, I was there. Alamein, yeah, yeah, I was there as well. Yeah. Far out. <laughs> It is amazing, isn't it? Oh, it's incredible. I mean, he really is our superhero. I really think he is. There's nothing else quite like him. I mean, there's there's other people that come into that category for a few years here and there, but nothing like this. He really was a man of this country, and, uh, you know, he spent all his early manhood here, and that's why we think he's one of us. OK, our outsider, definitely an outsider this week, Bernard Freiburg. Sir, General, oh, we haven't got time to put all the other titles in front of him, so we'll go with Bernard Freiburg to finish with. Jared Hindmarsh, thank you. Thank you. All ranks of the second New Zealand Expedition Force in Italy send greetings to you on Empire Day. These are one's thoughts on Empire Day 1944. Thoughts which renew confidence in the great, in the great part of the Empire has played and will play not only during the hard fighting still ahead, but also in the post-war world. May I, as their commander, thank you all. I hope your recollections are happy ones, and I trust that you will make a due allowance for the festive spirit of a large body of men coming ashore or from a cruise ship, and particularly to our comrades in arms, wherever they are serving. I send to you from the battlefields in Italy a message of good wishes from all ranks of the second New Zealand Expeditionary Force. Good luck, Godspeed, Fiora Katoa. Would you like me to do it again? I'll do it once again.
And a reminder, the archive for The Outsider's Tales with Gerard Hindmarsh is available on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. I encourage you to go have a look, not only because that's a fabulous thing to have available, uh, all the shipwreck tales are there as well, uh, tales of the lost secret museums and... Strange Societies. That was a tremendous series, at least I thought so, uh, with Matthew Trundle about how ancient civilizations actually lived. And man, it was so, so, so different, different morally. Check out the story of the Spartans in Strange Societies. Or, even better still, the Minoans. It's freaky and marvelous. We might do some more of those. Um, Matthew Trundle, I think, is uh, kind of keen. That's a good thing. All right, so a special hello and a big thank you if you've downloaded the program as a podcast. If you go to the Weekend Variety Wireless Facebook page, if you know all this, you know, don't worry about it, but people are tuning in for the first time. Go to the Facebook page and I will give you a heads up during the week. And there are some fun things that happen there as well. I'll post something stupid during the week if I think it's relevant. And... I'll give you a heads up as soon as I know what's on. Oh, shh, don't tell anyone. Brian Cox. I pre-recorded an interview with him. You know, the physicist guy who looks like he should be on Coronation and sounds like he should be on Coronation Street? Uh, he's everywhere. Look him up if you don't know him. But a nice, big, fat interview with Brian Cox will be coming up in the next couple of weeks. We'll just see how it goes. <laughs>